Now is not the time for the church to shrink back. Now is not the time for us to play it safe. Now is not the time for us to wish that we were living in a different period of history or to become comfortable or content. No, now is the time for us to rally around the mission of God like never before. Now is the time for us to join in the unstoppable momentum that has brought us here so that we can change the world for the sake of Jesus. First Church, this is our moment. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited to see what God is going to do in and through us. Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you are joining us, whether you are here on site or online. We are glad that you're part of our church family today. I just looked in online. We've got Jen and John from Enon. We've got Heidi, who's here in Owasso, watching from home because she's not feeling well. Sorry about that, but we're glad that you're joining us online. And also Hunter and his family who are in Claremore right now. If you are here on site, would you put your hands together? Welcome in our online family. So glad you guys are with us. And we are in week three of our series, Momentum. And if you are new, you could not have picked a better series to be joining us for because we are celebrating all that God has done over the past year in our church. We're also rallying around his vision for our future. Because one year ago, in the fall of 2021, we really studied this verse in Matthew 16, 18. And we rallied around it as Jesus gave us this promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it hit us in that moment that in the midst of all the craziness that we were living in at that time, and for that matter, we're still living in when it comes to our culture and society, we knew that there is something bigger at work than just what we see around us. And that is the movement of God within his people. That all the powers of darkness are not able to stop God's people when they are led by his son. And so we launched an unstoppable initiative a year ago. And since that time, God has been using our church in incredible ways. We have seen more and more lives changed than ever before. We are seeing record attendance numbers right now across the board, but especially in our next-gen ministries. Whether it's the little ones or the kids or the students, our next-gen ministries are exploding. That's why we're building a new First Kids building right now. That's all that construction that you see out there. And we have seen our small group ministries continue continue to expand. Our online ministry has expanded even more, and God just continues to open up more and more opportunities for us. Like the one that we celebrated a couple weeks ago, our new TV broadcast. It's on Channel 2, our local NBC affiliate. We had our first ever TV broadcast this past Sunday. It was an opportunity that we didn't go looking for. They came to us, and we heard phenomenal positive responses from that. And one person in our church emailed me this week, and she said uh, that her uh, she's got some family members who typically don't attend church, and she invited them to watch our TV broadcast, and they did, and they loved it. And her comment was, I praise God for this opportunity to be able to put our services on TV. So God is just opening up all these awesome doors of opportunity, and I'm excited to be a part of it. But here's the thing. As we hear all that good stuff... That's why this series, Momentum, is so important. Because the Bible gives us this warning. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Because even though the movement of God is unstoppable, the mission of God is unstoppable, it's our choice whether or not we want to be a part of it. 
It's our choice whether or not we individually want to be a part of it or as a church if we want to be a part of it. And so if you are new here today, you can find out about this Momentum series by going to this website right here, firstchurchok.com forward slash Momentum. That'll give you a summary of what's going on. Hopefully you already got one of those booklets that we passed out. But if you're watching online and you don't have one, you can scan this QR code or you can text book to 918-300-3977. You can also do that here on site if you want to, if you want a digital copy of that booklet. You can get caught up on everything that's going on. But we want to make sure that the momentum that God has used to bring us here does not stop with us. And so that's why we're in this series, and I am pumped about week three. You guys ready to get started with week three? Good? All right. Yeah, here we go. Well, if you were like me, you grew up watching sitcoms on television. My family used to love to gather on the TV and watch especially family-based sitcoms. And this was kind of crazy to think about it now because in our day and age, you know, you stream shows or you DVR shows, but we actually had like a set time that you had to be there. You would miss the show unless you had a VCR and you could record it on a tape. You know, you had to be there at a certain time to watch this show and my family would gather around. And some of these shows, were so epic and so huge that I bet that even if I put up like the house that the TV family lived in, some of you guys would recognize the show. And so let's play a little game. I'm gonna put up a TV house and you shout out. I want people at home to hear you, okay? Shout out what TV show you know this is. And so the first one's pretty easy. Here we go. What TV show is this? Full House. Yeah, okay, that was all right. Hey, what TV show is this? That's a little bit better. All right, yeah. Hey, Jody Sweeten, who played Stephanie, was my first ever celebrity crush. I was going to marry her. Hey, I ended up better off. Nothing against Jody Sweeten, but I very, very much loved my wife and had to get those points real fast. But still, she was my first ever celebrity crush. But my second celebrity crush was on this next show. Anybody recognize the house here? What show is this from? Boy Meets World, yeah, somebody over here knew it. Yeah, Topanga, remember Corey, Topanga, Sean, all the rest? Topanga was, my, was another one of my celebrity crushes. And we're gonna go a little bit older here. How about this house? Brady Bunch, yeah, story about a man named Brady, yeah, raising three boys on his own and all that stuff, okay? We're gonna go a little bit even older than that. Anybody recognize this house? Leave it to Beaver, yeah, how old are you, by the way? Yeah, Leave it to Beaver, exactly, yeah, I'm, I'm joking, yeah. Uh, hey, I watched that show on like, you know, TV Land and Nick at Night, you know, with my parents, but yeah, Leave it to Beaver. Okay, how about this one? Anybody know? Somebody said, yeah, Family Matters, yeah, a little bit harder, yeah, Family Matters, remember Steve Urkel, Then I do that? You know, I was kind of a country Steve Urkel, but still, anyway, uh, yeah, Steve Urkel and all the gang there, and how about this one here? Yeah, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, I heard it right away. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And every time that I see this house, you know what comes to mind, for me at least? Well, this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. I like to take a minute just to sit right there and tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air. Bum, ba-dum, bum, 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 ba-dum, bum, bum, bum. In West Philadelphia, born and raised on a playground is where I spend most of my days chilling out, maxing out, relaxing all cool, shooting some b-ball outside of the school. Well, a couple of guys, they were up to no good. Started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared. Said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle to Bel-Air. I whistled for a cab and when it came near, the license plate said fresh and had dice in the mirror. If anything, I could tell that this cab was rare. But I thought, nah, forget it. Yo, home, it's a Bel Air. I pulled up to a house about seven or eight, and I yelled to the cabbie, go home, see you later. To sit on my kingdom, I was finally there. Sit on my throne, I'm the Prince of Bel Air. Yeah. 
I may have messed up a couple words there, but I don't care. I did it, all right? So, hey, I've got no rhythm whatsoever. And I used to say what happens at First Church stays at First Church, but now we're on TV. I can't say that anymore, so it's out there. Now, the reason why I brought up all those shows is because they all have something in common. Besides the fact all those shows are about TV families, if you were to watch a 30-minute episode of any of those shows, what would you find? A problem or a conflict. And in the 30-minute time slot, there would always be some issue, some, some problem that would arise. And within the 30-minute time slot, the family had to figure out how to deal with it, right? And it's interesting to me that we watch shows like that knowing that there's going to be a problem. But I think we do because we understand that all families have problems. Now, typically, we're not able to solve our problems in 30 minutes or less, but all families have problems. And so if your family has problems, you're not weird or odd, you're normal. And we get this because we know that real families have real problems because they're made up of real people. And that's not a shock to any of you guys. All of us know that to be true. And here's the thing, God knows that to be true as well, and yet... One of the descriptions that God uses to illustrate his church is that of the family. Listen to what the Bible says as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says to the church, you are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. You, and he's speaking to us as well, we are God's family. And just like how our families have problems, the family of God on this side of heaven will have problems as well. You know why? Because as long as the church is for real people, we're going to have real problems. As long as the church is for sinners, we're going to have problems. It's just part of it. God knows this, but this is what he tells us. Those problems don't have to kill your momentum. Instead, if you turn them over to me, I can actually use what seems to be bad for my good. I can turn those problems into momentum makers. You see, we have a choice. We have a choice whether our problems will become momentum breakers or momentum makers. As problems come up, because we are sinful people living on this side of heaven, as problems come up, we have a choice. Are we going to allow those problems to be momentum makers or momentum breakers? And that's the choice that the church has had to make ever since its beginning. And we're going to look at the earliest days of the church today again in Acts chapter 6. You guys know that in this momentum study, we're looking at the book of Acts. It's the earliest history of the church. The church in its very first days. And the church over and over again, as they experienced problems, because they are the family of God on earth, they had to decide how they were going to respond to it. And we're going to see how they responded to a problem in Acts chapter 6. And this is kind of one of those passages in Acts that gets skipped over a lot. Some people consider it not to be that exciting, but I think God has some powerful truths that he wants for us to know today from it. So Acts 6 verse 1 begins with these words. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. Now I just want us to hit pause right there because I want for us to realize that in the first century world, how odd of a statement that would have been. This statement would not have made any sense to those who are outside of the church. You know why? Because it wasn't easy being a Christian in the first century world. 
wasn't easy at all. In fact, if you back up just a little bit in Acts chapter 4, we see that the leadership of the church was threatened by the local authorities. And the local authorities said, don't talk about Jesus anymore or you're going to be punished. In Acts chapter 5, the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we see that there is internal conflict in the church. In fact, there's corruption in the church. And you guys know that any time that corruption is found in the church, it hurts the reputation of the church, right? And then by the end of Acts chapter 5, we see that the apostles, the leaders of the church, are being arrested and they are flogged, beaten almost to death. And they're finally let go after they're beaten almost to death. And the local authorities say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And you would think with all that going on that there would be a lot of people who would be jumping ship. Who would be saying, I didn't sign up for that. You would think there would be a lot of people in the community that would say, uh, okay, you know, the message of the gospel sounds great, but I don't want to sign up for that lifestyle. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. We looked at this verse last week in Acts chapter 5. It says, no one else dared join them, join the church Even though the church, it was highly regarded by the people of their community. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number, the church's number. Now, I mentioned last week that that sounds like a contradiction because it says, no one else dare join them. But then God continued to add people to the church. Is that a contradiction? No, what it's saying is those who weren't serious about Jesus, they jumped ship. Those who weren't serious about Jesus, they wanted nothing to do with the church. They were gone. Those who were on the outside who were just listening to the message, when they saw all that persecution and stuff happening, they were like, okay, we're going to keep our distance. But those who were serious about their faith, those who were serious about their relationship with Jesus, those who were serious about living on mission, and they were looking at their lives as something bigger than just what they saw around them, but they were living for what was eternal, and they knew that God had a greater purpose for them. Those who took their faith seriously, they were all in. And they gave their all to the work of the gospel. And more and more people like that flocked to the church. And here's the thing. Those people who were flocking to the church because they were serious about their faith outnumbered those who were running from the church. Growth was happening in spite of everything going on around them. And when I think about that, it just reminds me of this truth. Sometimes God subtracts from our lives in order to add to it. You know, people were leaving, but even though people were leaving, God was adding. Sometimes God takes things away in our lives so that he can add more to it. And we don't like subtraction because subtraction hurts. But sometimes we need something to be gone in order for us to grow, in order for us to become who God knows we can be. You know, that friend that was removed from your life for whatever reason... And it hurt you. You never thought that person would backstab you, but they did. Maybe that person needed to be gone so that you could spiritually grow and become who God knows you can be. That job that you didn't get, that you thought you deserved, maybe God knew that that was a toxic work environment. And he didn't want you to be exposed to that. Instead, he had something better in store for you. Maybe your kid didn't make the sports team. Because God knew that your family was on the verge of turning that sport into an idol. And so your kid didn't make the team because God has greater purposes for you than that. Sometimes God subtracts things from our lives 
in order to add to them. I mean, that's what the Bible says in the book of Job. It says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. In other words, whether God gives us something or he takes something away, God still deserves to be praised because he knows what is best for us. So we trust him. And in Acts chapter 6, even though we have some people who are leaving the church, God is still adding to it and the church continues to grow beyond those who were leaving. And the church is excited about what God is doing in their midst. They were trusting him. Now, here's the thing. Even though the church is growing, growth is accompanied by problems. And that's what happens next. As we read on, it says, In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so most scholars believe that at this point in history, the church, which is just basically centered in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, the church is like 25,000 people in its membership. I mean, that's pretty good for a few months of work, honestly, isn't it? I mean, the church is growing by leaps and bounds. There's a whole lot of people. And as the church grows, you've got all sorts of people there. And there are two primary groups of people. They're all Jews at this point because the gospel hasn't gone out to the non-Jews yet, the Gentiles. But they're all Jews, but there are two types of Jews. There are the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Now, the Grecian Jews were those whose families years ago had moved away from Jerusalem and they have now come back. The Hebraic Jews were those who had lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding area their entire lives. They were natives to the Holy Land. The other Jews, they were outsiders who had come back, basically, and they'd been exposed to other cultures and stuff like that. So you've got these two groups, and both of them have widows among them. And in this day and age, if you were a widow, unless you had a wealthy family that could take care of you, you lived in poverty. And so the church has a program, apparently, to take care of these widows in need. But as the church grows and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, they don't have the structure, they don't have the organization in order to take care of all these widows that they have. And so the Grecian Jews, those who are kind of outsiders, they start to complain and grumble a little bit and they say, we're not getting the care that we need. And we feel like that the other Hebraic widows, they are getting it and we're not. And so a mess within the church starts to form. Things start to get a little messy. And I want you to realize this. Growth is exciting, but it's not without its problems. And this problem that the church is experiencing didn't happen because, well, somebody had done something wrong necessarily. I don't think that the slight was intentional to these Grecian Jews. It's not because there was like false teaching in the church or because of outside persecution. This problem, this mess within the church wasn't because of any of those things. It wasn't even because of bad leadership. Remember, it's the apostles right now, those men that Jesus directly appointed to lead the church who are leading the church, like, you know, Peter, James, and John, those guys. So it's not as if the church has bad leadership or anything. The reason why this mess happened was because of growth. Growth was... The reason for the mess, the mess was caused just by the church growing. Because the more life you have, at times the messier things get. Now, some people, when they start to see the mess that is caused by growth, they start to question the growth, blame the growth. And they'll say, you know, things were better before we started to grow. You ever heard something like that? We don't hear it all the time here, but every now and then we'll hear it. You know, things like this. You know, back when I was growing up in church, 
Everybody knew my name, and I knew everybody else's name. And now I come to church, and I see all these new faces. There's new people there every single Sunday. There's no way that I can know everybody's name. And I'm like, is that a bad thing that new people are coming to church? I mean, I don't know. But what are they doing? It's as if that years ago it was better when things were smaller. Or what about this? I don't know why these large churches have such big staffs. I don't understand why you have so many staff members. I mean, back when I was growing up, the church only had, you know, like one preacher and a part-time youth minister, and that was it, and we got the job done. And anytime somebody says that to me, which is not a lot, but every now and then, I will say, yeah, but how big was that church you're a part of? Oh, we had 100, maybe 150 people on a Sunday. And I'm like, yeah, it's different when you have 2,000 people, isn't it? Takes different structure in order to meet all the needs, right? It's growth. It's not a problem. It's just what it is. Or what about this? You know, I used to be able to pull up to that church, and I get a parking spot right up front. Now they got people driving golf carts to come and pick me up. How crazy is that? They have a golf cart ministry. We never had a golf cart ministry back when I was growing up. As if, again, that's a bad thing that we're having so many people. The tendency is when things get messy, you start to blame the growth. But here's the thing. We can allow for those things to hold us back and become issues and bigger problems than what they really are, or we can see those as opportunities for God to do more ministry, more work. And let me just say, let's guard against idolizing or romanticizing a certain size of church. Because I've been a part of all different sized churches. And I've been in small churches that are like 100, 150 people. And they're as cold as ice. You go there, they are unfriendly, they're not hospitable, they are cliquish, and you feel like an outsider. So don't tell me, oh, there's only a real community in small churches. Now, I'm not saying that large churches always have excellent community either. I mean, both can be unhealthy, right? But what I'm saying is community is always a choice. Community has to be intentional. Whether you're a big church, a mid-sized church, or a small church, community happens when it's intentional, and so when somebody comes to me and says, well, I just don't feel like I have any community here. Well, you can go to a small church and feel that way too. What are you doing in order to be intentional about having community within that church? And I get it. It's easy sometimes to complain about things when things are not how they used to be. But here's the thing. And I'm gonna be a little bit bold when I say this. If you wanna go to a church that doesn't have a whole lot of mess, then go to a dying church. Dying churches don't have a whole lot of mess. Because in dying churches, they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to do anything to shake things up. They never want to challenge anybody outside of their comfort zones. You want to go to a church that doesn't have a lot of mess? Go find you a dying church. And there's a bunch of them out there. But I want to be a part of a church that's alive because Jesus is alive. And I believe he is working in and through us. And he is going to be drawing more and more people to him. And as he draws more and more broken people to him, we're going to have to deal with that brokenness. And that brokenness is not a problem for him because he's bigger than any of it. And so therefore, we've got to be a people who don't run from the mess, but who allow for God to use it for greater opportunities to serve the world. I found this verse the other day and in scripture. I came across it. I guess I'd read it before, but it hadn't hit me like it did the other day. And it's now become one of my favorite verses. Are you ready for this? Without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. Now, how true is that? Yeah, if you have a barn without any animals in it, your barn stays clean. But what's the point, right? If you want to harvest, you got to have animals in order to do the work. And that's the same thing when it comes to the church. If you want a church that doesn't have a whole lot of mess, well, 
have a church with no people in it. But if you want to actually go out and reap a harvest as Jesus is calling us to do, you got to go out and reach people who are broken. That's what we're called to do. And so I challenge us today to remember that growth is messy, but it's worth it. I remember at the last church I served, uh, Allison and I, we were at home one day and we just had our son, didn't have our daughter yet, she hadn't been born and we were playing with him. We set up these little like makeshift tents with like sheets and blankets and uh, chairs and stuff. We had all of his toys out and we were playing with him and all of a sudden our doorbell rang and there was this lady from our church, this older lady who was all prim and proper, you, you know the type, you know, and she was the type, I'd been to her home before and you could run a white glove through it and there wasn't a speck of dust anywhere. You know, everything was just always so neat and in order and she shows up up at our front door. I think she was bringing us a pie or something, which was really nice, but still, she was bringing us, and our house is a wreck, because we got toys everywhere, we got tents built, you know, forts and all sorts of stuff, and when she walked in, I immediately started to apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry, we're playing with our son, and we got toys out, and I'm sorry. She said, oh, no, no, it's fine. I said, no, I know it's not fine. I've been to your house, you know, your house is perfect, and our house is not, and I'm sorry that you're seeing all this, and she looked at me, and she said, honestly, Chad, most of the time, my house is pretty boring, and I like this right here. That's the thing. A house that's messy is a house that's lived in. And we don't want to just keep the mess out all the time and embrace it and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. That's not what I'm saying. But instead, we need to know how to react to it, how to respond to it. Because remember what I said earlier, problems can either become momentum breakers or momentum makers. And so let's see how the church in Acts chapter 6 responded. So the 12, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, right there, that's a miracle in and of itself, that the entire church agreed on one thing. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself, but they did. And what did they agree upon? Basically, the apostles say, you guys choose seven men who are Grecian Jews, by the way, so they elevate the status of the Grecian Jews who thought that they were being slighted. And so they found seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. That's what the apostles say because they have been given this task to preach and to teach and to lead the church. And if we have to serve every single widow that we have, that's going to take away from our spiritual calling. So we know there are other men in our church who are full of the Holy Spirit who can do this other work. And this other work isn't any less important or more important than what we do, but we're a family and everybody needs to execute their spiritual gifts in order to get the job done. And so they find men who are full of the Holy Spirit to distribute this food. And you know what the result is? The Bible says, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. Those who are fighting against the church, the priests, started to join the church. Growth happened beyond their problem because They turned it over to God and their problem became a momentum maker rather than a momentum breaker. So what can we learn from their example? The first thing is this. We need to make sure that we think the best of one another. I want you to notice something. When the Grecian Jewish widow started to complain about what was going on, the apostles or the leadership of the church did not turn those women into enemies. They didn't attack them, but instead they attacked the problem. 
And sometimes when people come to us with a problem, it's easier for us to turn the person into the problem. And we need to make sure that we are focused on the problem, fixing the problem, resolving the problem, and still loving the person. And that's hard to do at times. But here's the thing, we will never be able, we will never be able to live out God's good purposes for our lives with a bad attitude. And if we approach the situation with a bad attitude, we're never going to be able to do what God wants us to do. And here's the thing, when you get on social media today, social media will teach you that our culture believes if you disagree with somebody, that's the same as hate. And that's just not true. We can disagree with people and still love them. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And even in the church, when you disagree with somebody, it's not about turning that person into the problem. It's about dealing with whatever the problem actually is. And together as a family, going where God wants you to go. Because here's the thing. Growth isn't cultivated by problem identifiers, but by problem solvers. And there's a huge difference. If you want to find some problem identifiers, get on social media. Everybody wants to call out the problems, but it's not about identifying the problems. Anybody can identify problems. My five-year-old daughter can identify problems, and she does it on a regular basis. She lets me know what's wrong whenever she sees it, okay? Anybody can be a problem identifier. A spiritually mature person is somebody who is a problem solver who says, what can I do? to help us move beyond this problem so that it can be a momentum maker, not a momentum breaker. That's why I tell our staff here, anytime they come to me and they have a problem, don't just come to me and identify the problem. Because typically when they come to me and identify a problem, someone else has already pointed it out, honestly. But come to me ready to solve the problem. It's having the right attitude, it's having the right heart. The second thing I think we can learn from this passage is this. Stay focused on the mission, but remain flexible in our methods. If you notice, the apostles are focused on what God was calling them to do and what the church needed to do. Their message did not change. Their mission did not change. But the methods that they used in order to carry out the work of the church, that did change. Our message, our mission, it remains the same. But our methods can be tweaked in order to get the message out there, in order to carry out our mission on a greater level. And that's what they do here. When they see this need, the apostles don't say, well, we've been the ones that have been distributing food up to this point, so I guess we just need to lose more sleep or put in extra hours and get it done. No, that's not what they said. They said, we need to give this job to somebody else because we can't keep doing this. We need to change our structure so that we can better serve the needs around us. And as a church, we've got to be willing to do the same. Because there's a lie that's out there from Satan that says that a truly spiritual person should be able to, you know, be a jack of all trades, be able to do everything in the church. And that just is not true. See, trying to do everything yourself isn't a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Because a spiritually mature person is one who says, God, I recognize what you've called me to do. I recognize my area of giftedness, and I want to execute that with all of my strength and all of my power, all the power that you're giving me, and I don't want to rob somebody else from executing the spiritual gift that you have given them. Somebody else can better do that than me. It doesn't mean we don't ever chip in and help, but we understand we're a family that works together in order to keep the momentum among us going. And then... The last thing I think we can learn from this passage is this. Follow the leading of God's spirit. And what I mean by that, I mean don't try to do it on your own. So often we just try to figure out things on our own. 
And what we need to do is be people who are listening to God, letting his spirit lead us so that we are empowered by him. And did you notice in this passage how the apostles and the entire church keep listening, relying on God's spirit? Look at what it says here in the text. It says, they presented these men, the men that they chose to serve the Grecian widows, to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. I want you to notice something. They lay in their hands on these men to set them apart as spiritual leaders. And what was their job? To distribute food. They weren't setting them apart to go you know, like on, on a mission trip or to teach on a Sunday morning or something like that. They were setting them apart to distribute food. And what is this letting us know? That job was so important because every job is important. That job is so important that they need to make sure that they understood this was a spiritual responsibility. Did you notice who the apostles told the church to find? It says, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice the focus here. The focus is always on doing what God wants us to do. And they said, find people who are full of the Spirit that can do this job. Guys, here at First Church, we want every single person who serves in any capacity to be those who are full of God's Spirit. It doesn't matter if you're the guy standing on stage preaching or leading worship or if you're the person who is standing at a door greeting people. We want servants who are full of the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter if you're an usher or if you're serving communion or if you're somebody who's serving at our cafe. We want people who are full of the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter if you're leading a small group, if you're teaching a class, or if you're helping out in any of our next-gen ministries, if you're going on a mission trip. It doesn't matter if you are that guy who drives one of our golf carts, especially you guys. We want people who are full of the Spirit of God, right? Because everything we do is important because it's for God's kingdom. And we need to make sure that we understand that our long-term effectiveness is directly linked to the presence of God's Spirit in us. Anybody can build an organization. Anybody can start a club. We're more than that. We are the church of God. We are his family on earth. We are his kingdom on earth. And we are the one institution that will last for all eternity. And therefore, we cannot lead ourselves. We've got to be led by him. And it's interesting to me that the apostles tell the church, go find men who are full of the spirit. In other words, as if the people would already know because here's the thing, when it comes to those who are full of the Spirit, those people don't have to tell you that they're full of the Spirit. People who are full of the Spirit don't have to continually tell you how full of the Spirit they are. You know how you know if somebody is spiritual, full of God's Spirit? Listen to what the Bible says, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember Jesus says you will tell a tree by its fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Those who live by the Spirit, those who are full of the Spirit, those who keep in step with the Spirit, are those who demonstrate the character of Jesus. Who demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's not about all the good deeds you do. It's about having the character of Jesus on a daily basis basis. It's not about being perfect, but having the character of Jesus. And apparently, when the apostles said, go find men like that, the church knew exactly who to turn to. Because those who are spirit-filled 
are those who unleash ministry because they are those who are empowered by God. Five years ago, when I first became part of this awesome church family, I met a couple in our church who I could tell almost right away was full of God's spirit and they didn't have to tell me, you just knew it. And I want you guys to meet them today if you haven't yet. Listen to their story. First Church is our family. There is so much love here and you feel it the minute you walk through the doors. You feel joy. I felt the spirit move. There's just something special about this church and if we had this many children and young families coming, that's what it's all about. God is definitely moving. When we greet, we have the opportunity to watch the young people, you know, come down and, and bounce around the corner there and head up the stairs to their classrooms. And you stop and think, you know, that's First Church's future. We need to be committed to that. Not only those young people, but you know, our high schoolers, and middle schoolers, and, and our first year's young people. With this unstoppable initiative, that's one way that we can participate, be a part of that joy and that excitement that these young people have. We have seen the kids come and their parents and go up those stairs, and there's a lot of laughter, and they're happy to be here. And that's the future of our church, and that's one way we feel that we as seniors can be committed to the Unstoppable Movement. First Church just has a very special place in our hearts. Uh, we hosted a foreign exchange student this last year from France. Her mother had been our exchange student 30 years ago, and their daughter 15 years old came to spend Christmas with us and we brought her to the candlelight service and that was the first opportunity she had ever been in an American church and I looked over at her when the candlelight service started and there were tears coming down her cheeks and I leaned over and I said Jojo what's the matter and she looked at me and she said I have never felt so much joy and I thought, wow. <laughs> and then I just leaned over and I said, do you want to be a part of this joy? And she said, yes. And I said, do you want to be baptized while you're here? She said, yes. So her sister was going to be baptized that Sunday. And so I thought, what an opportunity they could be baptized together. There's just so much joy here and people feel it when they come, even teenagers. We're Rex and Sharon McKee. And we're committed to finishing strong with the Unstoppable Initiative. You've probably heard me say before, we're not building a building. We are preparing ourselves for God to do even greater work among us. We are resourcing ourselves so that he can move among us to reach the next generation like never before. And when I see videos like that, no price is too big. 
because we're living for something that lasts, something greater. Anybody can build a building. God is using us to build up his kingdom. You should have got one of these midpoint commitment cards in your booklet. If you have it with you, you can go and pull it out. If not, that's okay. I don't want you to do anything with it today. Don't get nervous. But if you open it up on the inside right, there's this page right here. On March, the, I'm sorry, March, and October the 23rd, just two weeks from now, we're going to have our Commitment Sunday, kind of like what we did last fall. And I just want to explain what this is because I want you to be praying over it, and then we'll be done today. This orange section says, I'm new to Unstoppable. If you did not make an Unstoppable commitment last fall, then this is the box that you check, and we want to invite you to write in a commitment number for the next year, a year's worth of giving, what you're projecting. And we would love for you to be invested in what God is doing in this place. And then this next section, this purple section, is for those who already committed to Unstoppable a year ago. It was a two-year commitment, remember? And now we're at the midpoint, got one year left. So this box for you to write in what your current two-year commitment is, whatever that is. And then there's two boxes here for you to check. You either check this one, says, I'm committed to finishing strong. In other words, hey, I'm working hard to meet my commitment, and I'm committed to finishing strong. But then there's another box here that says, increase our two-year commitment. Because maybe some people, it's not everybody, but it might be you, maybe some people are in a position now where they can actually increase their giving. And if God is calling you to do that, then there's a place for you to do that as well. And on October the 23rd, we're gonna have another commitment Sunday. It's gonna be a big day. It's gonna be a special day. You're not gonna wanna miss it. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be fun. If you were here last uh, fall, you know what we're talking about. But when we have this commitment Sunday, it'll be a chance for our church to recommit to finishing strong for this next year. One year left of, unstoppable, of this unstoppable initiative so that God can use us to do even greater work. I love what God is doing in this place and I hope you do as well. And I just pray that we will not be a church that stands in his way, but that we will be a church that continues to change lives for the sake of his son. Because some people may say that the kids overflowing upstairs <laughs> is a problem. In fact, I've even heard people say, hey, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> and I know what people mean by that. I don't see it as a problem. I see it as an opportunity for God to use us in even greater ways. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this moment we've had to open up your word and study it. And I just pray that we will be those who do not put out the Spirit's fire, but who continue to move your momentum forward that you continue to use to do even greater things. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.